This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard, a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. It's my great honor to share that inheritance and to invite other farmers from Georgia and around the country to share their tips with you. It's an opportunity for us to slow down and to connect and to plug in. And the farm does that in a way that lets you connect and appreciate the life that exists and nurture and cultivate that. And then extend that to the relationships to the people who are in that house with you and your community. So if you are just starting out, reconnecting with the land or a seasoned farmer, join the conversation. And to be honest with you, it was like, would Warren come out and say, hey, I want to be a farmer? Probably not. I, I consider myself a city kid. You know, when we initially got a horse, you know, I have that New York City mindset, a horse. I'm thinking thoroughbred horse, aqueduct racetrack, <laughs> Belmont racetrack, those type of things, you know, and, and, and slowly but surely I'm starting to understand a lot more. I do remember early on, like, you know, the first month or two of dating, how we would daydream about starting a farm together. And it's kind of like, hold on, let's like pump the brakes and get to know each other first and then talk about that, you know? <laughs> so what got me into chickens? Um, I always joke and say that a chicken saved my life. Um, and it very much so did. I'm interested in black liberation that's ecological and that's not contingent upon... <sighs> these systems giving us anything. There's also something that's beyond this that I want and that I seek for our, for our people and that's intimacy with the land and that's reliability. And so for us, it's also this idea of connecting people back to the land and connecting our um, folks back to their ancestry. So what does it mean to organically, sustainably farm in our current economy and time? Please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And we have a cool guest to introduce you to this week. Kristen McGlory is the founding editor and creative director of the Genius uh, Series for Food 52. Kristen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So let's just dive right in. Uh, what is Food 52, if anybody has has missed out on that phenomenon in their, in their lives? And uh, how did you get involved? Sure. Um, Food 52 is a place where home cooks can connect and where we try to provide every possible thing they could want for making their cooking and home life richer. So 
that includes everything from articles and recipes to videos to now podcasts with the launch of our new network uh, to cookbooks to a hotline where home cooks can ask each other their cooking questions in real time to a shop that we stock with kitchenware and home goods. Uh, that was largely populated by makers from all over the world, and it still is, but also increasingly we've been creating our own products in partnership with the community. So we, we survey our community often on social media, but also through other means and kind of find out what they're looking for in, in you know, a new dish drainer or a new skillet and cobble all those ideas together and, and make our own line of goods too. So that's, that's the gist of Food 52. We've been around for a little over 10 years now. And it was founded by Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs. And the way that I came to find them was, uh, well, I'm not sure where to begin really, but I mean, I was their first hire. So um, they had just been kind of working out of coffee shops and uh, we didn't have a real office and we would go to um, Amanda's home kitchen to shoot photos and videos once or twice a week. And at the beginning, I just was kind of their, their right-hand person who just did whatever they needed to do to keep the site going. So I would cook at the photo shoots and wash dishes and um, run over to my computer and write a blog post and tweet and then go back and do more dishes and then, you know, prep more ingredients. Um, yeah, I also, you know, we were so scrappy and we continue to be scrappy, but we've grown up a little bit. Um, I also for a while shot and edited our videos and they were terrible. <laughs> they were so hard to watch, um, because that was definitely not my skill set. but mainly I came to food 52 because they were looking for someone who had some cooking experience and some writing and editing experience. And I had been pursuing a path where I was trying to get as much of both as I could. So it ended up being a really good fit. And I stuck around for the last 10 plus years. What did you think in, in those early days? What did you think of the idea? What did you think of uh, wearing all, all those different hats that you just described? Oh my gosh, I loved it. I, it, it completely spoke to me. I mean, I, I loved their mission of being for and about and with home cooks all the way. I mean, most of what we did in those early days, there were, a, you know, we were always trying something new and writing different kinds of blog posts and featuring different, different columnists and um, just doing really random stuff. Honestly, we were just trying a lot of things, but really the bread and butter of what Food 52 was in those first couple of years was testing tons and tons of recipes from the community uh, in these contests and the contests kind of like we, we tried all different, you know, we would always make them really complicated and uh, somehow our, our readers would follow along and, and they would create recipes, submit them to our contests, add them to the website. And then at the end of a year of contests, we would put together a cookbook with all of the winners in it. So we did that for two years and that's really how Amanda and Merrill bootstrapped the company, how they launched it in the first place was by getting this book deal. Um, so the advance from the book deal was what funded Food 52 in the beginning. So I, yeah, I absolutely loved it. I still think very fondly of those days. I love being able to do all kinds of different things. I love being able to tell the stories of, you know, testing three different apple pies and three different Bloody Marys over the course of a weekend in my teeny tiny little East Village apartment and, you know, trying to get friends to come over and, and you know, eat these 
you know, piles of pie and, and Bloody Marys to find um, these really exceptional recipes from home cooks all over. Um, I loved participating in the photo shoots and getting to see kind of how the sausage was made. Like there was this one time that we um, challenged Cooks Illustrated to a duel of sorts where I think Chris Kimball at the time had said, you know, recipes needed to come from a, you know, really well-honed test kitchen. They couldn't come from home cooks. Um, and my bosses, of course, um, you know, wouldn't stand for that. And we're like, okay, let's, let's see about this, Chris. Let's, let's see who can make the best. I think we did sugar cookie and pork roast, but we needed then to shoot all of these things in one day. And we, at the time we only used natural light. So we were trying to figure out how to do two pork roasts and two cookies in a single day. And so that meant a lot of me at home in the days before, like tracking down pork roasts and cooking them to certain stages of doneness, and then finding a way to carry them all to from the East Village to Amanda's apartment in Brooklyn Heights, um, you know, without like I, I made a porchetta and I made some other kind of brined pork roast that the Cooks Illustrated had come up with, and so like you know, filling a taxi with all these different stages of pork, <laughs> raw, semi-cooked, cooked, and getting to Amanda's apartment. I I love being able to try to figure those situations out and and then see them on the website later, and I know that for so many people who work in food and do photo shoots, you know, that's kind of what happens behind the scenes. It's not usually very glamorous. It's usually kind of, kind of a mess and kind of a, let's figure out how the heck we make this work. And then, and then, you know, you're kind of, you're all in it together and you get to see, see what you've made at the end. And it all feels very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good feeling to see, to see the, the result of all that labor presented so beautifully. Yeah, it is. And, you know, when you're, when I was just getting started out, I was just so proud of, of being able to say like, look, that was, I, I made that porchetta in my tiny oven and carried it across the river. And, and then people reading Cooks Illustrated and Food 52 all voted on what they thought was the best. So, yeah, I think I, I, I miss those days a bit when, when we were so, so very scrappy and, and I, I did, wear so many hats, but in some ways I still do. Um, it's just not quite that. Um, I, I no, not, you know, not I slippy anymore, not so slippy. You know, it is though, honestly, <laughs> like <laughs> this, this last week I tested probably seven batches of hummus. So, and then I had to, to figure out what to do with all this hummus. So I've been eating hummus soup, <laughs> which is <laughs> like, there, there's no real reason that hummus can't be soup. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a lentil soup. Not so different. Yeah. Yeah, all the ingredients that go into hummus can be soup, too. I'm just trying to figure out how to eat a lot of hummus. <laughs> Recipe tester problems. <laughs> I'm sure you've both been through similar things when you're developing a new recipe or a new product. I Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I it's, um, it's always thinking about what to do with, with um, all of the, all of the different things that you know, that all, all of the different things that you make when you're testing a recipe or shooting a recipe, um, they actually, they have the community refrigerators now. I don't know if you guys have them in your neighborhood, but, um, if, if things are whole, you can generally add those to the community refrigerator. So I, we actually took a few fruit tarts down there yesterday and some loaves, which was great, a great way to, um, be able to, you know, 
find a happy home for all of this amazing, delicious food that, you know, we just have an excess of. That is so cool. I had not heard of those. I'm, I'm actually in, um, I just moved from Brooklyn to uh, the South Bay area in California a few months ago. So I will, I'll need to look up and see if we have something like that here. But the the bright side, I guess, is that I finally have neighbors who will take some of my leftovers. So I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I think like one, one really fascinating thing about Food 52 is just like, and you, you know, you mentioned it with like where it started, but just the evolution and where it is now and how, you know, at its inception, it was kind of like the wild, wild world, wild, wild west of like food on the internet, right? Um, <laughs> like, and food on the internet has just in the past 10 or 11 years, obviously blown up into something that like no one could have predicted. And you guys were so well situated with being, you know, a, a pretty much online only kind of company. Um, so I guess my question is, um, like, can you tell us a little bit about where you guys are now and why you think Food 52 was successful and was able to kind of stick around and grow into this um, really important space in food media? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. Um, I think definitely at the beginning, the founders saw something that just didn't exist online yet, which was that at the time it was, you know, a lot of top-down media, a lot of magazines who were, you know, finding, finding great stories and, and sharing great recipes, but like very much broadcasting, very much telling us what we should be cooking and eating. And then there were all, there was also this movement in the early aughts of, of all these food blogs proliferating and, you know, all these individuals sharing their own stories and their own recipes. And, and my bosses saw that, that there was no real place for them to connect and for them to, to share the things that they were doing. So that's really what food 52 started as it also was, was started because Amanda and Merrill had met by working on this massive cookbook project themselves. Um, Amanda's, essential New York times cookbook. That's how she met Meryl was she needed someone to help with that. And that was like a five or six year process. And they noticed in testing something like, I forget 1600 recipes or so for the, for that book, um, that most of the most memorable and best recipes that had been published in the New York times all the way back to the 1800s were from home cooks. And so these two different things were happening at the same time where they were testing all these recipes from people who were not ostensibly professional cooks that they loved. And then also seeing all of that happening and growing online. And the idea for food 52 really was born out of that. So I, I, it's been amazing to just see how it's evolved. It, It never really stays the same. I mean, even the contests in the early years, we would change the form and, and hope that people could follow along. Um, they've always had a lot of vision for where they needed to go, but also no fear of experimentation and failure. So, you know, there were plenty of things that we did that just kind of didn't go anywhere or like just, you know, I don't know. They just didn't necessarily end up amounting to much or they, or they just frankly failed. But 
in doing that, if you, if you try enough things, then you start to see obviously what will work and what is worth pursuing. So I don't know that I could neatly sum up what has positioned them to, to be so successful now, other than just kind of like constantly reading the room, constantly trying new things and constantly also going back to the original mission of connecting a community of home cooks. And that's really what has been this amazing thing in our shop. For a long time, our shop didn't have a strong community element. Like it was a community of makers and producers, but it wasn't directly tied to our, our audience, that community. And really when, once we turned to the community and started asking them how, you know, what would they want out of XYZ products that we started developing these products that were really, really taking off because they were, they were created out of the ingenuity of home cooks. And then also, of course, like as we were pitching them back to the community, once they were created, we were able to point to like, this person said they were looking for this thing. This person suggested this amazing feature in our apron. Like who would have ever thought to put potholders on the corners of an apron so that you can just grab a pot and carry it to the table with, you know, and, and have the corners of your apron be more protective to your hands. You know, those kinds of little clever features, like we could go back and, and point to all of the people who had individually contributed those ideas. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of nailed it with just that adaptability. And I think that, um, that can, it can be hard for us to kind of like edit when it comes to something that we're passionate about, um, you know, whether that's uh, like, especially in this business, because I do think most of us do have a passion for food, a passion for community, a passion for sharing with other people. So um, I do think that's a really excellent point um, that we all do need to sometimes, like you said, stop, read the room and ask, like, what is actually resonating with with the with with the community that we're trying to build. And, you know, I think sometimes we get a little like caught up in, um, in these other metrics. Um, and I just think that's such a great point about like the staying power that food 52 has had. Um, but yeah, so I was, you know, I was talking to to Ethan a little bit earlier and I, and we pulled out, well, I pulled my food 52 genius desserts book. Uh-oh off of my bookshelf and um ethan informed me that he actually he has a recipe in here i don't know how i didn't know this but um kristen can you tell us a little bit about um what your process has been like with the the genius series and the various books that you guys have published and um i mean these books are not only beautiful and just so helpful full of like great I feel like each recipe kind of teaches you something it's that it's that like kind of soft teaching but um you know they've been nominated for a number of awards um so yeah Kristen give us a little insight about that sure so I started the genius recipes column on food 52 in 2011 and it has always basically since that very first post I put a little line at the bottom of it saying you know do you have any genius recipes that you've cooked lately? Things from a classic cookbook or an online source or anywhere, please send it to me. I'm always looking. And from that very first post, 
I've been getting emails from readers telling me about things that I probably never would have discovered otherwise. So it's been community powered from the very beginning. And of course, like I will also be always hunting on my own, reading through cookbooks and, and diving into stuff um, like this, this hummus path I've been on. Um, And, you know, former employees that I've worked with are always looking for me and sending me tips. So I think that that has really been the reason for the longevity of, of genius of the column. And then now it's kind of spun off into all these different tentacles in the, in the genius franchise where there's now the two cookbooks, genius recipes and genius desserts. Um, and a third one that I'm working on now for beginners very slowly. Um, we started then doing a, a weekly newsletter, uh, from me, which was kind of our first foray into a regular personal newsletter. And then we started doing a video series and with, me cooking the recipes, but also as often as possible, having the original um, authors of the recipes on to talk about them and tell their stories. And then that directly, very directly led to the podcast that we just launched recently, the Genius Recipe Tapes, because especially at the beginning of the pandemic, luckily we had figured out how to have you know, FaceTime or Zoom conversations with authors last year, because, you know, for a while we were trying to get as many people in to, to do our video shoots with us as possible, but we were pretty limited to people who were either passing through New York or just lived in the New York area. And so we decided we wanted to try and get a, a wider swath of, of the geniuses to be able to come in. So we figured out how to do FaceTime or Zoom calls and have them call in, you know, and either cook part of the recipe with me or just kind of talk about it. And we would insert that into the videos. So that part we had figured out, thankfully. But then when we, when we switched to not being able to shoot in the studio anymore and, and changing all of our video production to being at my apartment and my husband became the whole audiovisual crew, um, those conversations that I was having over Zoom and FaceTime with the authors just felt so much, excuse me, felt so much more raw and intimate. And, you know, we were all going through the same things at the same time. We were all trying to figure out how to get groceries in the beginning and how to feed our families and, you know, talking. My my first person that I interviewed when we started sheltering in place was Bryant Terry and his whole book tour had had to be canceled. So there were just a lot of things that we were talking about that weren't necessarily directly related to the recipe. So all of that we realized could fit very nicely into a podcast in a way that it wouldn't necessarily fit in a cooking video. So that's, that's the latest iteration of genius. I hope that, I hope that answers your question. And you're, you're absolutely right that the whole point of these genius recipes and the reason I think that they have been so memorable and that people have kept sending them to me is because that's the whole point is that they're the recipes that we all share or the recipes that we talk about and once we cook them, we have to call our mom or email it to our, our friends. And the next time we make that thing, like Ethan's and Max's frozen yogurt, that's the frozen yogurt we want to make because it's, as, as the title says, best and easiest. Um, once you realize that you can just mix a few ingredients together and spin them in an ice cream machine and have really good tart, tangy frozen yogurt that you can then riff on and take in other directions, then that's, that's the recipe that you use. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was originally a recipe that Max and I had written for a serious ease column we had at the time, which came from uh, my ice cream company, and and exactly what you're describing that that feeling of stumbling onto a super simple recipe that that just just worked every time. It's a it's a quart of yogurt and a cup of sugar mixed together in an ice cream machine. It doesn't get easier than that, mm-hmm. um, but it's so good, uh, and 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 obviously lends itself to lots of other flavors and innovation and tweaks and, and, you know, the, the cook's creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to make that recipe. <laughs> it's so good. And I think one thing that also struck me at the time was, I guess Max had written about it on serious seats, the idea of putting in wine too, like that what the liquid that you add could be to, to thin out the yogurt could be anything and it could even be wine. And that, that also kind of blew my mind. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know what, let's take a quick break. (laughs) We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. Uh, You're listening to Why Food, and our guest this week is Kristen McGlory, founding editor of Food52. Um, Kristen, I wanted to to ask you a little bit about the community, um, because Food52 has such a a strong community, such a, a, you know, so many devoted followers, and at a time where uh, it seems like a lot of people are trying to build a community on social media, um, find a niche for themselves, find an audience. Uh, you and the, the Food 52 team did that before anybody else had. Um, so I was, I was curious to hear more about your approach to that, why you think uh, you've, you do have such a devoted community and, and any advice you might have for somebody who's looking to do that now. Hmm. Um, I mean, the way that we built our community, I think, was just by by listening to people and by, by valuing their contributions and their ideas and crediting them. Um, I think that's what has, has resonated with people and has, has made them loyal and made them want to keep coming back. And we also just like gave them space to do their own thing too. Like, you know, we gave them the tools so that they could upload recipes and submit them to contests and potentially have them published in a cookbook or, or featured on the site with, you know, a, a beautiful photograph. Um, we gave them a hotline to just kind of like run with, like people can post their own 
questions and it really spins up around Thanksgiving every year. Obviously it's, you know, a lot like the, the butterball turkey hotline, except that you are, you know, quickly typing your question and you can get answers back from home cooks who've, you know, cooked dozens and dozens of turkeys over the years, but also um, we all take shifts. The, the Who 52 editors and other people on staff take shifts to make sure that no question sits for more than 10 minutes because we know that that's such a, such a critical time for everybody. So I think that's, that's a lot of it is just like really trying to respect the community. And even when things don't go great, I mean, we've had plenty of, plenty of conflicts in the comments. Um, you know, people definitely don't always agree with us. They don't always agree with each other, but, and so, you know, over the years, people have suggested like, maybe like other sites don't have comments. Why do we need comments? Why do we need to, to worry about, um, what people are saying? Why can't we just kind of put things out there and, and just have like blissful silence, but um, that there's really no way that could ever happen on Food 52. I think, you know, we've of course needed to set some standards and make some, you know, terms, you know, the, the kind of classic technical terms of use um, that are on every website, but also just kind of like community guidelines of like, here's, you know, we, we encourage lively debate, but here are all the things that we won't stand for. So to kind of give some some guardrails so that things don't go, you know, as dark as they can on some other corners of the internet. Um, yeah, I think that's, but, but I don't know how much that applies to, you know, an individual who is trying to create their own community and their own brand. I think there would probably be other, other things that would, that would make more sense. But I think, I suppose the through line is just being a real human, like being as genuine as you can, being as respectful as you can, and being as reciprocal as you can, um, to like always give credit where credit's due, um, to share and appreciate other people's content as much as you do your own. Um, cause if you're shouting into a vacuum about your own stuff and not talking to other people, then, you know, just like at a cocktail party, like someone's going to leave and go like get another snack if that's all you're doing. So it's like, you know, a lot of the, the common social courtesies really still apply online. If you want to have your online experience, um, just be warm and welcoming as opposed to, um, you know, places where it can go a little darker. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a hard line to walk, but I, I do think I think you're absolutely right, and I, I do think a lot of um, either early stage companies or or sort of uh, would be aspiring influencers um, forget that they're talking to real people, that there's somebody else at the other end of that conversation, and even if you've never met them in person, even if you don't you know know anything about them, there's still somebody else who's trying to cook your recipe or uh, trying to work with with within the you know, work with the tools that you're giving them. Um, so, so that reminder, giving, giving your audience a, a forum to, to talk to you and give you feedback and engage with each other is so valuable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I am no stranger to people um, questioning everything, questioning my, you know, the, the ingredients I use, the words I use, the equipment I used and, or, you know, saying this recipe didn't work for me or like, why would you do this? Or like, I, I, I needed to field a lot of, of questions from people. And, you know, there's, I think it's really natural to be defensive and say like, like, you know, the reality is we can't test a recipe 
80 different ways to tell you if, you know, this other flour or this other sugar or this other liquid will work in the recipe. There's just no way that we can realistically do that. Um, and it's also, you know, it, it would be easy to kind of blame like, oh, well, maybe your oven isn't calibrated or maybe, you you know, your equipment was different than mine or like when when we're faced with this with questions after we've put ourselves publicly out there to to say this is a great recipe and this really works but that doesn't I don't know I don't think that that kind of conversation really is helpful or 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 goes anywhere good unless you can still be a human on the other side and say like hey I'm really sorry I I hate when recipes don't work out for me like let's troubleshoot it maybe maybe we use different equipment maybe next time I would you know, check it a little bit earlier or, you know, is there anything that might've changed? Cause this is what happened in my kitchen. Like to, to, I always try to take a step back and remind myself how that feels when, when you've, um, you know, when you're investing in a recipe, whether it's to cook it or even just to read about it and think about cooking it, that, you know, to try to respect that people, um, are taking the time to engage with it and they deserve a, real human response. It doesn't mean that I can necessarily, um, you know, answer every question, but I can at least try and tell them what my experience was and help them figure out what will work for them. Hopefully. (laughs) Valerie, what's been, how, how have you handled that in, in your cookbook? I mean, niche. (laughs) 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 Well, like I would say um, my experience has been really that coming from um, completely outside of food media, really. So um, I didn't have even any experience with seeing the process from, you know, uh, that someone else was going through. So, um, you know, everything has been, um, it all just feels like (laughs) um, just a, a steep, everything feels like a steep learning curve. Um, just every aspect of it. Um, so I think that like, um, it's interesting because I'm, I feel like as soon as I finish something, I'm like, wow, the next time I'm really going to nail it. (laughs) So, um, I don't know. I think it's definitely, also just like obviously with um the current climate and the current situation just adds another um kind of layer to navigate um you know we were mentioning earlier that we just you know wrapped up our photo shoot and um just even something as um like as exciting as being able to like you know have a team bring your recipes to life like there have been just a lot of really unexpected um layers to navigate yeah absolutely i mean how what did your photo shoot look like i mean i imagine everyone was wearing masks and and being very careful about how to get your groceries and everything but like did it how did it feel to you to be on on set with other people after so much time in isolation. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting because when you were talking about um, shooting, you know, going from the East Village to Brooklyn Heights with these 
um, with the pork and the sugar cookies. I was like, it's interesting because now we have Instacart, you know, which will deliver, it'll at least deliver groceries for us. (laughs) So um, that's like one kind of interesting little caveat. But I like, because I already had COVID, I feel like it's a little bit like in a way less stressful in those types of situations where you're just out and about in the world. And of course, everyone, you know, safety was like of the, you know, utmost importance. So there were temperature checks and everyone wore masks and everyone, you know, did their best to keep a distance. Mind you, we are in a studio that has limited space. But, you know, for lunch and all of those things, everyone kept a distance and there were no extra people on set. Um, You know, I hear that, you know, people's, um, you know, agents and editors and art directors are generally like kind of there um, kind of directing and and being a part of it. And, um, you know, I think it's just because of the fact that, you know, everyone is just doing their best to really mitigate risk and and limit unnecessary risk of exposure. Um, You know, we definitely had a a small team. And also, um, like my initial photo shoot was going to be in Canada this summer. So that got completely scrapped because it's not like you can just go to, (laughs) even though Toronto felt... um, felt close. It's not like you can just go to another country right now because of all of the travel restrictions. So, um, you know, having to like completely scrap the plan that was in place for like nine months and um, get a whole new team together. Definitely unexpected layers to navigate. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And did you feel like, I remember because I used to do a lot of food styling at Food 52 you know, that feeling of like, oh, the shot is not quite perfect. We need to keep hammering at it and try something new and maybe like, you know, set up something different, take more time on it. But I can imagine doing that when you're trying not to spend too, too much time in super close quarters with other people. Like, did you feel like it added an extra sense of urgency of like, okay, we need to just like nail this on the first try? Or do you you think it was, was relatively relaxed with the team you were working with? No, I think that I do think there was like just a kind of general sense of um, of urgency, you know, especially for the shots where um, where there were people in them, of which there aren't many, but still um, just trying to be extra, extra aware and extra careful. And also everyone kind of just doing their part of understanding, you know, that you are on set with other people. So do whatever it is you can to really limit, you know, unnecessary exposure to, to other people and, and being out and about around the city, which as we all know, is having an outbreak right now. Mm -hmm. So um, I think everyone was just like really respectful of that. And, um, but it did feel like, there was like a sense, there was definitely like a sense of like twilight zone feeling of like, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's honestly kind of odd to like be in this 
very specific world of like baking a ton of cakes and pies and cookies during a pandemic. There is something that feels a little like <laughs> odd about it because um, it's like such a like happy, joyous thing that you you want to share with other people. And like, that's not exactly the world that we're in right now, like, especially like this month and this week, even it feels like particularly um, topsy-turvy. Right. And you're creating these, these vibes and these photos, like everything is, you know, you're in this blissful place getting to eat beautiful cakes and, you know, maybe even like dinner party scenes and stuff that that feel very far away, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> it's that is exactly what it is because it's like, yeah, you're essentially staging something that, um, I mean, you know, my book is going to be out next fall and we would all definitely like to hope and believe that by next fall, we will be a little bit closer to, um, to where we were before with feeling comfortable being around other people and sharing those moments and experiences with other people. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely kind of like forward looking and it's, yeah, we were creating scenes that like I haven't experienced in real life since before March, since, you know, February and before then. So um, that was, yeah, it, it, there was like a bit of like a, a surrealness to it. All right. Well, on that note, let's uh, do some fun rapid fire questions and uh, call it a day. Uh, so, Kristen, um, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? Oh, I don't think I have a very creative answer for this, but I feel like I am sort of made of baby arugula at this point because I, you know, we're cooking for cooking for ourselves three times a day. And like, I just, you know, I'm trying to keep vegetables in the mix, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not always easy. And so uh, my default answer is just like throw a handful of baby arugula on a plate, squeeze some lemon and olive oil and salt and pepper over it and just like toss it around with my hands. And that counts as my vegetable. So I, yeah, I'm probably 75% arugula at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what's, what was your favorite, quarantine cooking trend Ooh, well the the crispy cheesy pan pizza that i wrote about in genius recipes um early on in the pandemic uh from king arthur flour and their their baking team what is amazing it's an amazing recipe and it's it was a huge viral sensation for us on food 52 and i think it it traveled further so i highly recommend trying that recipe it's it's a very good thing to do with your your time during pandemic. It doesn't take a lot of active time, but um, it makes a really great fluffy crispy result. What? Yeah, I've seen that recipe and it's been on my to cook list um, for a while. So I will check that out again. What's your uh, desert island kitchen tool? You you get you get one thing to take with you. What do you take? One thing. Oh, that's so tough. Um. Oh, I'm deciding between three different ones right now. All right, you can uh, do three. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Special special rules for me. Um, okay, bench scraper um, for cleaning up messes and like transferring a huge pile of, of like broccoli to a pot or whatever. Um, meat pounder for just like smashing garlic. 
um, crushing nuts, anything I want to take my aggression out on, not usually actually meat. Um, and butter warmer, small, like a small pot. I use so much more often than I would think to, you know, like melt one stick of butter or heat up, um, you know, half a cup of water or coffee for a baking recipe. Like pulling out a big pot just doesn't make any sense for that. Those are good. We bench scraper we've had before, but the other two nobody's ever said before. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it really tells us a lot about you by what items you choose. Yeah. Um yeah, that's very, very insightful, Kristen. Um, <laughs> Thank you for giving me the bonus tools. I know we would have missed out. I, know, seriously. I, feel, I feel very well, maybe, seen. <laughs> maybe we should always let people pick three. Maybe maybe one is too reductive. Nobody can do anything. No, they have to. They have to let us know hmm. that maybe it's going to be three, and then we can let them choose three. But we can't give them three. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, is it my turn? Yeah. A favorite Halloween candy. Mm, good question. Oh, okay. Um, this is gonna probably be surprising and weird, but just Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> like, they're not really chocolate, but like, there's the chew is so satisfying, and I also like that at Halloween the other flavors come out. Oh yeah. Okay, like the vanilla and the mm -hmm. like orange and mm -hmm. all those. Other oh, that's so interesting. Um, Ari, what's your favorite Halloween candy? Reese's pumpkins. Reese's pumpkins? What's a Reese's pumpkin? It's a Reese's shaped like a I've pumpkin. Never seen those. <laughs> I feel like every are you serious? Like we have this conversation every week where you like you have some favorite food that I've never heard of. What I don't know what rock I've been living under. Yeah. All right. Cool. Reese's pumpkins. All right, Ethan, your turn. Your your favorite Halloween candy. Uh, favorite candy of all time really is a York peppermint patty. I just mm -hmm. I I yeah, the texture, the the dark chocolate, the mint just get That's very classy. But I do like anything sour. That's the like you know, Warhead, Sour Patch Kids. I'm I'm a Okay, that's less classy. Um, well, Kristen, that's a little more typical. Kristen, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, where can our listeners find you? Read your recipes, listen to your podcast. Uh, any other, any other info you want to oh. share? Yeah, every platform, every medium you can think of, we have infiltrated. Um, you can find uh, all of the Food Fifty Two podcasts at F Five Two Podcasts on Instagram, and the new one that we have just released is called the Genius Recipe Tapes, which is also available everywhere podcasts are. Our um, Genius Recipes videos and all of our other videos are on YouTube at Food Fifty Two TV. Um, that's the that's the part of the URL, and then all of the columns and newsletters you can get through Food Fifty Two com. And oh, I'm at Maglorious on Instagram. Awesome. Um, as always, you can reach us at Why Food Podcast on social. You can email us whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you can find me on social at Foodie in New York. Thank you to Jess Krenjic, our always awesome sound engineer. Thanks to the Red Cricket, the to the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is Blind. And most of all, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been so fun. All right. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next week. See you next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.